Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, June 14th, 2021. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer of New Mexico in Focus here at New Mexico PBS. We have got another great show for you, and we encourage you, if you haven't listened to our most recent episode, some great conversations with our line opinion panel for the week Everything ranging from a Supreme Court decision on whether or not the state should be compensating businesses who suffered during the COVID-19 pandemic to the upcoming Pentagon report on, you guessed it, UFOs. Our very own Senator Martin Heinrich had a hand to play in all of that. So check that out. But here in this episode... We're going to kick things off with something that's top of mind for, I'm sure, a lot of us right now as we're in the middle of a heat wave here in New Mexico, and that is wildfires. We know it's a dangerous season, and our wildfire season is getting longer. The wildfires are getting bigger, and that's all in part because of warming temperatures and climate change. And this is also a very timely story in our Our Land environmental series because It was exactly 10 years ago the Los Conchas wildfire burned more than 156,000 acres of the Jemez Mountains. So we're looking at 10 years back. The impact of that Los Conchas fire is still there today. You can see it. You can feel it. And uh, forestry officials are working overtime to figure out how to restore and maintain this really valuable ecosystem here in New Mexico. So without further ado, it is time for Our Land with correspondent Laura Paskus as she looks at how climate change is altering New Mexico's forests and what the future holds. I'm Laura Paskus. We all know how wildfires are affecting our forests. We see this across the state, from the Gila National Forest to the Jemez Mountains. And across the West, wildfire season is getting longer and our wildfires bigger. But when it comes to climate change, there's even more impacts, drought, insect infestations, and more. On this month's episode of Our Land, we learn how climate change is affecting our forests and we look ahead to the future. In June, 2011, a massive wildfire ignited and erupted in the Jemez Mountains. In all, Las Conchas burned 156,000 acres, including about half of the Pueblo of Santa Clara's watershed. The seep right around there. Daniel Denapa, forestry director at the Pueblo, remembers that summer. Just before Las Conchas, he was here in Santa Clara Canyon. We were up here consulting with Governor Dashno at the time, and we are actually looking at the forest conditions because it was so dry out here. And we had almost 100% what we call a probability of ignition. The forest was parched, hot, and when a power line through the Santa Fe National Forest blew over, the fire blazed into action like no one had seen before. Las Conchas burned incredibly hot and fast. In its first 14 hours, it scorched more than 43,000 acres. That's one acre per minute. And you can see those impacts from the fire and the severity, which they were uh, really high severity burns. And 
you know, we're seeing limited growth. 16,000 acres of Santa Clara burned. Soils were superheated. They became hard like concrete. All of the fish died in Santa Clara Creek, a tributary of the Rio Grande. And after the fires came dangerous floods that ripped apart the floodplain. Today, aspens and oaks are coming up where conifers once grew. And the Pueblo has planted about 800,000 seedlings, like ponderosa pines and Douglas firs. In some spots, though, those species that grew here in the past just can't survive in this warming world. But Danapa says it's important to keep connections with those forests of the past. It's important that we preserve as much as we can because a lot of these trees are sacred to the people. They've been a part of their livelihood and a part of uh, their tradition and in their culture. And that's why it's so important for us to make sure that it tries to, to get it back as, as much as we can. Laura McCarthy is the New Mexico State Forester. In her role, she brings various agencies and communities together to work on one of the state's most pressing problems. We are going through an unprecedented time in terms of the speed at which forests are changing and the environment is changing. And we're talking about ecosystems that have evolved over millennia. And so the big unknown questions are how will forests adapt and which pieces and parts within an ecosystem are going to respond quickly and adapt quickly and which will not. We know how climate change drives bigger and hotter wildfires and a longer fire season. But rising temperatures and changes in precipitation, like less snowpack, that affects forests in other ways too. Drought, for example, kills trees outright. It also weakens a tree's defense against pests, like bark beetles. When I'm walking out in the forest, I'm not looking for healthy trees. I'm looking for, for uh, any kind of tinge of, of something's wrong with that tree. And generally, if it's a bark beetle attack tree, what you'll see is the whole canopy um, kind of changed a straw color. Eventually, it turns a red rust color if it's been dead for a couple years. Every year, the state does aerial surveys. The 2020 survey showed a 9% increase in insect and drought stress from the year before. There's a couple of signs um, that I look for, um, whether that's um, woodpeckers pecking at the bark. Um, some other indicators are uh, the pitch tubes that have dried. And then you can see exit holes. If the tree has been attacked for so long, um, those eggs will, uh, will reach adulthood and then they'll bore their way out of the tree and you'll see these little tiny round exit holes. Over the last decade, drought and hot conditions have caused bark beetles to kill more than one and a half million acres of New Mexico's forests. Defoliators like caterpillars and pinion needle scale, they've affected almost four million acres in that time. State forestry relies on science for surveys, treatments, understanding what's happening and what will happen. And part of Deputy Director Lindsay Qualm's job is making sure that New Mexico's 23 sovereign tribes are a part of conversations around forest health. 
I think the advantage that they have is that they hold lands that have been here for millennia. They are on their ancestral lands. So they are the original stewards of this land. They've been here managing this landscape. They've seen the changes, they know the changes, you know, they have a lot of traditional ecological knowledge that I think we need to tap into and listen to to help us with today's problems because in their stories, in their culture, they speak of it. It's up to us to put the science with that knowledge. So it kind of provided that like really, really nice wetland habitat. Today, Chad Brown is the Forest Development and Restoration Manager for Santa Clara Pueblo. He started working in Santa Clara Canyon in 2012, the year after Las Conchas, when crews were dealing with floods and ash and debris flows. Over and over again, they had to figure out ways to remove the trees jamming up the canyon. If we hadn't had done that, then it would have created like log dams and structures to where the next debris flow could have like impacted the homes down at the base of the canyon and within the community. Now he works on planting and restoration and he sees how everything is connected. It's been several years since our last flood, but all the trees that have been within this, uh, this Santa Clara Creek tributary, they've seen the fire, they've seen the floods, and now they're getting impacted with the insects that are coming in because of those stresses from all those previous disturbance events. You're getting all these complex layers of things that are impacting these trees and you're seeing a lot more mortality. This landscape here in Santa Clara Canyon, it's been the people's homeland for millennia. The governor in Chavarria talks a lot about the forest and the canyon being the sanctuary, the grocery store, our pharmacy. And that's reflected back in the culture and the stories and the songs. You talk to anyone in the community, they all have a story about being in the canyon. Everyone has a favorite place in the canyon. It ties all the way back. And there's that long lineage of people being here. This landscape has taken care of them. And the people of Santa Clara will continue taking care of this landscape, no matter what changes are coming. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Pascas. Next up on this week's show, we want to follow up a segment we had on the show last week that looked at the ABQ Home for Life program. This is a campaign, a marketing campaign, an effort by the city of Albuquerque to attract new residents, uh, work from home, remote workers as they're called, uh, as well as bring folks who have left New Mexico back here uh, to the state. It is a noble effort, an economic development effort. Everybody understands that. We also know that our housing market in Albuquerque right now is really oversaturated. People are having a hard time finding houses to buy. If they do, they end up paying well over the asking price. And so we've been uh, investigating this to see if this is really the best strategy considering that housing crunch right now. Uh, last week, we encouraged you to go back and listen to that. We talked to Cynthia Jaramillo of Albuquerque Economic Development. And this week, we talked to a gentleman who knows a lot about this. He spent more than three decades in the battle for affordable housing. That is Mike Lofton of HomeWise, which is a really creative program that helps people buy their first home and also give them financial literacy training in the process. So senior producer Matt Grubbs talked to Mike Lofton last week 
about how to think holistically about housing, the market, and housing costs here in Albuquerque. Mike Lofton, thanks for taking a few minutes with us. Um, one of the things that I think gets commingled in our minds when we think about um, housing shortages are the terms affordable housing and housing market. Um, how do you, taking into account both those terms, how do you think of the housing housing as a whole, I guess? Well, I, I would say that, you know, the term affordable housing is inherently a relative term, right? What you can afford may be different than what I can afford. Um, I think the, the way I think about it is, do you have a housing market um, or a housing spectrum that um, all types of housing and different income levels are, are served, right? So that you're looking at the health, the healthy housing situation is one in which the whole spectrum is being served, right? From there's interventions to help homeless people um, get out of homelessness. There's um, affordable rental housing, there's home ownership housing, there's ways to help people that already own their home uh, keep it because um, they may need to fix the roof or something, but you look at the whole the whole spectrum of it and there's people, higher income people who need housing and if there's not housing for them, then it creates pressure downward on the other housing. And, you know, so you, you got to look at it holistically. Uh, in Albuquerque, which is one of the markets in which uh, HomeWise works, uh, the economic development is making what's perhaps an understandable play, um, you know, from their perspective for more workers from big cities making um, good salaries who might be able to work remotely from Albuquerque. It certainly, as I said, from an economic uh, development perspective, sounds good, but might they be crowding out um, people who already live here who are looking to get into the housing market? Well, yeah, I mean, any, but anytime a job gets located in New Mexico and Albuquerque and, and it, um, there's more demand for a workforce, then there's gonna be more people moving here and it's gonna create pressure on the housing market. Whether they're working from home or working from an office, they still have to live somewhere. So. I don't think economic development and, um, and economic growth is inherently oppositional to affordable housing, right? It's like, I don't know why we can't have both. And so I think what the city's doing is actually kind of an interesting idea, and I think a pretty innovative idea, on trying to figure out a way to do economic development without just ch chasing a smokestack or a big firm or Amazon or whatever. It's, hey, there's, um, you know, our quality of life is terrific here. Um, and if you could work for Google and make what they make in you know, in the Bay Area and live in New Mexico, you're going to have a pretty good, good uh, lifestyle. So I think I, what they're doing, I think, is, is as an economic development strategy, is fundamentally sound. I think the problem is you need a you need a uh, a corresponding housing strategy, and that I don't think the city of Albuquerque has. I don't think we have a housing strategy of how we're going to make sure we build a healthy housing spectrum, um, so that there's there's more housing and more options for that people can afford and and um, benefit from. Sure. You know, the city said to us last week that they don't anticipate this being a sort of land rush from out of towners, right? That it'll happen more gradually and the housing market will have time to adjust to that. Um, is there a way for us to gauge whether or not that scenario is a reasonable expectation? I don't know how you would gauge that. Um, I mean, I guess you'd, you, I don't know what their metrics are and what they're measuring, but, <clears throat> but I think I wouldn't wait to do the measurement after the fact. I would start saying, what can we do now to increase housing options? And I think if you're going to be attracting 
you know, people who are telecommuting and stuff, and, and some of those people are going to be single people who aren't necessarily going to want a suburban home or a rancho that are going to want to live downtown where they can walk. Um, and are we creating housing options downtown? Um, are we creating, and, and for single people, and, and, you know, are we creating ownership options? Because a lot of people get tired of spending money on rent. Um, and they're going to want to put, and if you want them to put down roots, then ownership is a, is a good way to do that. But then you're going to have people say, I'm moving here. I don't know if I'm going to like it. I need something I can rent. So you need, you need all those kind of options. <coughs> Excuse me. Sure. Uh, um, who needs to be thinking about this stuff from a higher level, from that 30,000 foot perspective? Um, you know, our political system isn't really set up for someone like the mayor um, to necessarily be thinking, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Well, I think mayors have to do that, that we need them to do that. I think it's essential that they do that. I think there's, you know, there's actually a lot of good stuff being written recently about the power of mayors to innovate and, and, and pave new, new ways. Well, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of uh, Chicago, wrote a book on the, the, you know, the, the central role of cities. Um, there's another book called um, The New Localism that, that makes the same kind of argument. So I think mayor, it's, it's a, cities are a place where this can happen. And, but it takes leadership at the top. It takes, because you got to coordinate with the economic development department. You need a housing strategy. We don't have a housing department. It just focuses on housing in, in Albuquerque. Maybe that's something that should happen. Um, but if you're going to, you know, you can't do economic development without also looking at where people are going to live. They go hand in hand. Um, and, and housing, unfortunately, gets left behind a lot on this. And, and what we do, and this is true for city of Albuquerque, is there's just a lot of focus on how to do very low income rental housing, which is an important need, but it doesn't address the whole spectrum. So when someone buys a house, it frees up a rental unit for someone that needs that rental unit, right? That's why the spectrum is so important. It's all interconnected. Um, and then the other thing is just like spatially, where do people want to live? And I think if we're going to revitalize downtown, if you don't have more people living there, um, you're never going to do it, right? So the Silver Street um, grocery store, which is a great thing that happened there, there needs to be more people that can walk to that store um, if that store is going to be viable, right? And then when the store is viable, downtown is more viable, more people want to live there. It's a, you know, it's a virtuous cycle. And so we're actually getting, HomeWise is getting ready to build 16 townhouses right across the street from Silver Street Market, which will be a really good thing. And it's mixed income. It's not all low income. There'll be real affordable housing there. There'll be market rate housing there. Um, and that's the kind, I think that's the kind of thing we need. The problem with that project is it's only six feet in it. Right. That's it's incremental um, change. Um, you've done some work for the Urban Institute, um, and you argue that especially since coming out of the housing crisis a decade ago, um, owning a house can actually be cheaper than renting. Um, can you spend a, maybe a moment explaining what you're getting at there? Yeah. So what, you know, there's a growing recognition among policymakers in the Biden administration, especially that uh, the path to closing the racial wealth gap in America is largely going to be accomplished by closing the, home the racial home ownership gap. Um, and so there's some recognition of that. What's not recognized is how home ownership is also this very powerful engine for, for housing affordability. So I did a, a, a paper for the Urban Institute that looked at what do people pay as a percentage of their income on housing? And homeowners uh, across the country pay the typical homeowner pays 10 percentage points less on housing than does the renter. It's not 10 percentage, you know, it's 
10 percentage points, it's like a third less. Um, and so, and then I looked controlled for income. And if you look at um, people who make less than $50,000 a year, which is considered low income, um, that 10 percentage point advantage holds. When you look at people who are very low income making less than 20,000, it still holds. When you look across racial and ethnic line, it holds. So it is like, we overlook it as this, this it's a powerful kind of um, affordable housing. And the main reason I, I go at length explaining why this is true, but what the main reason is when you buy a home, typically you're locking into a 30 year fixed rate mortgage. So your principal and interest portion of your housing expense, with the exception of taxes and insurance, is held constant for 30 years. There's no such thing as a 30 year lease, right? So you, so you get progressively ahead because you've, you've held constant your, the, the vast majority of your housing payment. What I think, the reason why I think we, um, we tend to think that buying a home is more expensive than renting is because of our own experiences. Like when you buy a house, typically your, your, what you pay on housing goes up, but it's not driven by the tenure, right? It's not because I'm going from being a renter to an owner. It's typically because I'm going from a one bedroom, one bath apartment to a three bedroom, two bath house with a garage and a yard. If I rented that extra house and I'd be paying more too, right? So we, but we conflate those two things. It's like, no, it's in fact, in two thirds of American counties, it is cheaper to buy a home than it is to rent a comparable home today, not in the future because you know of the, the, the inflation thing I was talking about earlier. That's true right now. It only gets better because you've controlled um, the principal and interest portion of your housing expense. Sure. And um, you were looking at, uh, to let people know, you were looking at numbers from Zillow. So these weren't just, you know, arcane numbers out there. One of the things that I noticed um, in, in your paper was that, um, I mean, you talked about the racial disparities and ethnic disparities. If you look at Black and uh, Hispanic homeowners, um, even at low income levels, uh, they are doing better in terms of what percentage of their, their income goes to their housing um, than white renters. Um, so, so it really seems to um, level the playing field, is it not? Oh, yeah. No, it's it, it, like, it's, it's stunning, right? That um, you know, black homeowners and Hispanic homeowners pay less percentage of their income than white renters do across the board. Um, but here's, here's the rub on that. In Albuquerque, in, in the metropolitan area of Albuquerque, 73% of, of whites, non-Hispanic whites, own their own homes. It's only 65% of Hispanics, which is still, compared to the national statistics, is pretty good. But in 1990, the Hispanic home ownership rate and the, the Anglo home ownership rate in Albuquerque were the same. There was no gap. A gap has grown since then. What's really disturbing is the, the home ownership rate for African-Americans in Albuquerque is only 44%. Like it's a huge gap, almost 30 points between white homeowners and black homeowners. We could do better. I think, you know what I think we should do as a city is we should say we're going to become the first city in America that has no home ownership gap. We don't have a racial home ownership gap. We close it. Um, and it's doable. Well, Mike Lofton, we thank you so much for your time. We knew we'd run short and of course we did. Um, uh, but thank you again. We, we appreciate your work on this and uh, paying attention to it. Th thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. And we had the opportunity to get out of the studio for another story this week, really looking at uh, the ag industry here in New Mexico. Our crew took a trip up to the Santa Fe Farmers Market, actually a couple trips up there, to find out how growers are emerging, emerging from the pandemic 
Shutdown's impact no doubt forced changes in how farmers have done business over the last 15 months, but there also seems to be plenty of innovation coming out of the post-pandemic world as well, and that is exciting to hear about and see. And of course, all of our segments are also up on YouTube and on our uh, website, NewMexicoInFocus.org. This is a visual story as our land just was as well, so we encourage you to go and watch those as well, but we're happy to bring them to you here on the podcast as well. Senior producer, you just heard, that's Matt Grubbs, I should say, who you just heard on the uh, HomeWise segment, was the one to head up the charge uh, at the Santa Fe Farmers Market, along with our talented photographer and editor, Aaron Senna and the rest of the New Mexico in Focus production team. And so here now is a trip to the Santa Fe Farmer's Market. There's a huge community benefit right now for people being able to come out and gather in a safe way, and I think that the, the, the opening and expanded market provides that. Currently we have lots of greens coming out of the field, um, some vegetables as well, some herbs as well. Uh, beets and carrots will be coming, and there's a whole slew of things for the summer, and then come fall we have peppers. We have about 12 years planting. And we grow lettuce, arugula, kale, spinach. I feel a lot better, hoping that things are going better now. Yeah, I've noticed that the customers now they're a little bit more confident coming. And before they used to just grab a bag and leave right away, but now they actually take a little bit of time. Yes, it feels there's a relaxing. Um, people feel much more at ease, I think, being here. Our farmers plant, and they were in the planting season, but they already had a lot of planting, especially if they had greenhouses. It was essential for us to get that food to the community, to the customers. We needed to get their products sold. Um, so we had to do whatever we needed to do to keep the market open, which we did. It was not easy. But it, it, we certainly did it, and it was uh, something I would not like to repeat. But this is our business, actually. We only sell to the farmer's market. Um, we're here Tuesdays and Saturdays. And last year was, a, you know, was a hard um, figuring out how we were going to do this, even if we were going to stay open. Our farm is in Hakona. And we are Mr. G's Organic Produce, and uh, we've been here at the Farmer's Market 20 years. We sell here at the Farmer's Market. Uh, we also have a uh, CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Program, where people buy shares that they pick up every week. Okay. Well, this is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's okay. You gave me two there. Oh, okay. You gave me two vibes, yeah. Okay, great. A lot of us adopted um, that model, not knowing, you know, they had pick up at the farms or actually our farmer's market did something where they're doing it, continuing to do it, where we all kind of grouped into their CSA and then 
they bought through the farmer's market here. So you get a bag of produce every week that you've pay, prepaid, and this prepayment helps the farmers to plan and plant um, their crop knowing that they have some of finances to do it with ahead of time. What it's supposed to do is support the farmer during tough times. So traditionally what you do is you would pay the farmer up front a fee and then you're, it's kind of like a gamble. You would then get a box of produce every, every week. Um, we didn't do it that way, however. We just, you know, you paid for what you got. But it is a great model for farms who are struggling, who maybe have hailstorms and you lose everything. You're investing in the farmer. A lot of the, the growers are growing different things. Um, some of them have more of a, they're doing their own CSA programs. Some of them are online now. They had to adapt to all of these new protocols and they did an excellent job. Um, can I just do one pound of the 85% ground? Look at that. I was ready for you for sure. We're at, uh, let's see, one, two, three, we're about five markets a week. And so that's split the time between myself and my two teenage daughters. And so you'll find us, you know, from downtown growers, Corrales growers, Santa Fe, obviously, and El Dorado. It was really one of those things where we had to be pretty engaged with what was going on around us. Just focus on strategically placing our product. We knew we had to do something, be in more control of, of marketing our own brand, our own product. Um, but when COVID kind of came around, we, we definitely established um, a new relationship with, with a food consumer who was more direct. So we started um, calling upon uh, tribal administrations uh, in the Pueblos. Um, from basically from the Pueblos through Navajo all the way to Hopi. And so we started actually delivering uh, a lot of beef uh, and beans that was grown by our neighbors. Are you looking for a specific size? My teenage daughters again developed an online store so that a customer could uh, purchase online and then we could uh, deliver the product uh, to a mutual location and we could already have everything. So it's curbside pickup basically. And so that really was not where we thought we were going, but that's where we wound up having to be because of COVID. And as a result, we, we found ourselves more engaged with, with the consumer on a daily basis. When I'm at the market, you know, again, my daughters, my wife, and my dad take up a lot of the, a lot of the day to day stuff. Because uh, coming come to the market is pretty much about a 12 hour deal from the time we leave, time we get back to the ranch. Uh, so we spend a lot of time just, you know, um, just multitasking doing it differently but at this time we just feel like we're in a lot more control of our market we feel really connected to our consumer um, like i tell a lot of my market customers this is my market customers to me are my energy for the week we bring a variety of, of cuts um, traditional cuts popular cuts it's grilling time of the year <laughs> i i use i use market friendly yeah yeah so that's not very hot i've been called so much work it ended up being an amazing year. People felt very safe. They wanted to know where their food came from. They liked it that we were shopping outside, um, local. The sense of um, community and health around food that I think people are very hungry for, especially at the moment. Customers are happy to be back. I haven't seen some of my customers in a year. They just didn't come or they did it through the CSA, through the drive-thru and this year they're coming back, so happy to be back. Smiles through their eyes, <laughs> which is nice to see.
That will do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. And before we go, want to shout out to the New Mexico in Focus team. Of course, there's host Gene Grant. You know him. Senior producer is Matt Grubbs. Uh, and Kathy Wimmer is our producer. Also, a shout out to the production team at New Mexico PBS. There's production manager Anthony Lostetter. And the rest of the team, Robert McDermott, Aaron Senna, Kevin Maestas, and Benjamin Yaza, could not do it each and every week without their help. We're already planning next week's episode, and we encourage you to keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week to see what's coming up. But we'll be back with much more conversation and discussion for you next week here on New Mexico in Focus. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, stay cool. Want to add that in there this week? It's a hot one, no doubt. But thanks as always for listening. <laughs>